Welcome to Filmy Matters, a podcast hosted by a married couple of cinephiles, Katie and Josh. And this podcast episode, we are covering the Godfather trilogy. Not just the first one, not just the second one, but all three. And so to introduce this uh, behemoth of a topic, I will turn it over to Joshua. Okay. Well, everybody knows The Godfather, uh, but most people I know have not saw the whole trilogy. Uh, the Godfather was actually... Uh, hailed as one of the greatest films of all time. If you look at several different resources in film, AFI, both The Godfather 1 and 2, are listed as one of the top 100 films of all time, one of the top 100 best films of all time. So the way that we went about watching The Godfather was we watched The Godfather the Epic, which was released in the early 1990s, and it takes The Godfather 1 and 2 and puts them together to where they are played in chronological order. Those who have seen The Godfather 2 know that it goes back and forth in time from the lead character, the actual Godfather, from The Godfather 1 to his childhood, and it goes back and forth into what is the modern time of the film and flashes back and forth. With The Godfather, the epic you're able to actually watch the film uh, from the very beginning of the story of the Corleone family all the way up until the present time. And then we followed that with Godfather 3, Coda, which was actually the re-released version that just came out in December 2020 of The Godfather 3. So that was the alternate ending version of Francis Ford Coppola's original cut of the film. And so um, for me, I've only seen like the original Godfather maybe two or three times uh, prior to this viewing. And I've probably had only seen The Godfather Part 2 maybe one time before uh, we sat down and watched this new, not really new, but this uh, differently edited version. So for me, none of the... I didn't really, none of the differences really jumped out at me as far as like where the changes would have been. Um, and I suppose as a viewing experience, watching it this way makes a lot of sense because you see the development of the characters in a very natural way, in a very chronologic, from that chronological order being used. I would say perhaps maybe a drawback from this form of editing is that you might get introduced to a character, like, say, at the very beginning of the movie, like with Hyman, mm -hmm. um, and then you don't see him again for, like, two or three hours, and by that point, you're kind of like, who's this guy? Yeah. <laughs> Why is he important? <laughs> no. But it, it felt more like a really long novel in this format as it was presented and i appreciated that i enjoyed that format i did too i like that format better than the original format where at godfather 2 you're going back and forth uh, throughout the entire film i found it just to be easier to go through the whole thing in chronological order mm -hmm. it, it made a, a different sort of sense and so uh with with that format, with that chronological format, I feel like it's easier in a way to see the development of the individual characters and the storyline as a whole. And that was, those are some of the themes that we wanted to focus on in this episode was the sense of character development and how an individual can transform over time. Yes, yeah, and I think you see a lot of transformations in this film. Uh, definitely, um, 
throughout the whenever you watch the whole trilogy you see several transformations but even if you break it down to just the film one two and three you're going to get a lot of character changes over time mm-hmm. yeah you see just kind of at the most basic level the change in character for instance we'll talk about Vito Corleone the eponymous godfather Um, he starts as a poor boy in middle of nowhere Sicily (laughs) Corleone Sicily to be you know to be exact and witnessing the murder of his brother his mother possibly witnessing the murder of his father um, and then getting whisked away to America where he has to completely build his own life from scratch as a child. And while the, the movie, you know, skips forward several years, you see how he becomes this powerful, well-connected individual as a young adult and as a young man and a father and a husband and how he makes those different kinds of decisions surrounding violence and who he aligns himself with. Right. The way that I saw that as adult Don Vito Corleone, as you go through and you see him once he becomes a father and once he has a family and then starts to make his way into organized crime, I found that his character development went from being practical to greedy. I found that you know, initially, whenever he started in the crime scene, it was in order to protect his family and protect his neighborhood from who at that time was an, another, I don't want to say the godfather of that neighborhood, if you will, but someone basically that was just a big bully that came around and that at that point wanted a cut of everything. Everybody Mm -hmm. in the neighborhood owed him something for protection, uh, which they may or may not get. So with that being said, uh, it started off as a sense to protect everyone, but then once he saw uh, that crime was actually able to lead to monetary gain, to personal gain, uh, uh, items, tangible items, then that turned into uh, him becoming greedy and actually using his abilities for his own personal gain. Right. It seems that whenever he first started out in the crime career, he almost had kind of like this do-gooder kind of out outlook. Right. Um, and he was like the antithesis of this like um, unending consumption of the guy who was over the neighborhood to begin with, where like nothing was ever enough. And as soon as he had one price point set, he would up it again. And I I noticed that, like, one of the things that seemed to offend Vito Corleone was the fact that this guy was going after Italians, too. Right. Um, And and to him, it was sort of like, uh, like a violation of, you know, familial ethics or something. Like, you don't go after your own. Right. I could see that. And I definitely saw the change in Don Vito's character because, you know, he couldn't quite grasp the concept in the beginning that here was this man who just took advantage of everybody and threatened his own, as you mentioned, and would bring harm to those who didn't take care of him. And that really surprised me because he just really didn't really understand that whole concept. And so from there, he just decided he was going to do something about it. Yeah, it's kind of like this um, expanded father figure kind of mentality 
where, you know, he's a family man. He has to take care of his family and his kids and protect them. And he sees this guy as a threat not only to his immediate family, but also to his larger cultural family and family of place and neighborhood. Right. So once we go into the actual godfather picture, whenever we see uh, a more aged Don Vito Corleone and uh, played by Marlon Brando, we see that he's very well respected, very powerful, a very dominating presence. Let's talk about that performance just a little bit. Okay. It's um it's so unique and it's so well known at this point like i i don't even think you could probably count how many times that performance has been imitated in in popular culture and it's such a a powerful reference point that even as a child before you ever even witness the film you're already familiar with some aspect of the performance you know um and they were such it was such a unique um, choice, I guess, to go with the like vocal decisions that he made for how he would speak and the method of inflection and uh, his tone and his accent or, you know, all, all those sorts of things. Right. Um, it, it's a very quiet performance. Um, he doesn't really raise his voice much. Um, throughout the film, it's it's more, there's like this kind of quiet, threatening kind of presence that he has. Right. Like he has so much power and authority that he doesn't have to raise his voice. Just his mere presence is, you know, imposing enough. Right. And I like that. I like that style of leadership. You know, whenever you look at that as opposed to you know, uh, Joe Pesci's character in Casino, Mm -hmm. you know, who'll just turn on you, who's a hothead at any minute. And then, you know, whenever you had Robert De Niro's performance where he uh, uh, played Al Capone, you know, I remember whenever they were in the the staff meeting and then one guy, you know, makes uh, the wrong comment and then he gets his head bashed in with a baseball bat, you know, you don't see Don Vito react that type of way. You just know that he's going to think things through. He's going to be very, very uh, thorough as opposed to impulsive in his thoughts and decisions. Yeah, syphilis is not eating away at his brain like it was uh, Al Capone's. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that makes a difference. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, and and Robert De Niro carried that same energy in the in the second film. Um, obviously, he had the characterization of Marlon Brando to base his you know character off of, but I think that he was able to kind of carry that same energy. In his performance, he too. did, and I thought that was good because it was a quiet presence. Mm-hmm. Same thing; you never saw him overreact. It was a very, very subtle performance, but also in the the subtle sense was that you were playing one of the most, as you mentioned, well known, powerful, dominating characters of all time. Uh, it was interesting. Both Marlon Brando and Robert De Niro won Oscars for the performance of Don Vito Corleone. So that was interesting that you have two separate films where both performers win an Academy Award for playing the same character. Mm -hmm. They're very controlled and measured performances. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Sonny, played by... Uh, James Caan. James Caan, total opposite. Yes. Yeah. 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 So, and I think that's good too because uh, you see in The Godfather 1 when Sonny speaks out and, you know, reacts in a private meeting and starts to spout off at the mouth, you see where Don Vito, the Godfather, mentions to the Tatalias, you know, uh, you see I've spoiled my children. Mm-hmm. You know, they speak whenever they should listen. And I thought that was a, a 
great portrayal because you see oftentimes in very wealthy, powerful families, you have these children who can be spoiled and take on the complete opposite characteristics of their parents. Yeah, it's almost like with with Vito, um, like the way that he conducts himself is in the precise opposite way that society, American society and culture expects him to behave in a stereotypical way. Right. Um, as opposed to the hot-headed, loud-mouthed Italian, um, he's reserved, he's measured, he's cool as a cucumber. But Sonny, meanwhile, like kind of plays into that whole entire stereotype. Right. And just fully indulges in it. And I think that's one thing that really irritated a lot of people as time went on Mm -hmm. with the film is that you see, you know, there's some racial slurs and some Mm -hmm. personal attacks on the Corleone family. And I think that comes from a place where they, these people are kind of irritated because they're not taking on the stereotype that most Italians were pinged with at that time. They were a very classy, sophisticated bunch and never really overstepped their boundaries. Yeah, and something um, that I didn't notice in the film whenever I watched it, but in doing some research afterwards, was that um, in The Godfather Part 1, there are no references to the Mafia or La Casa Nostra. Mm -hmm. So talking about the depictions of Italian Americans in the in the movie um, despite the liberal references of the term in the source material The Godfather the novel by Mario Puzo the film team was actually pressured by a man called Anthony Colombo Jr who was a son of a mobster himself that any mention of the mafia be stripped from the film and according to a piece that I read um, from the New York Times that was written by Sam Roberts after Mr. Colombo's death in 2017, this was done under threat of labor strikes, missing set pieces, and even missing cast members <laughs> unless the writers and producers met his demands and received an unofficial blessing from the mafia. And Mr. Colombo was actually the vice president of the Italian American Civil Rights League, which was an anti-discrimination group that was founded by his father, who was an organized crime member, Joseph A. Colombo Sr. So he had a lot of power and influence in order to get his way in that respect. Well, it all worked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I just, that was something that I didn't even notice when we were watching the films that they don't even mention it. It's just like such a... It's such a known factor that it didn't even dawn on me that they yeah. didn't say the words. Continuing along the the lines of this sort of Italian-American identity, something that um, jumped out at me when we were watching the movie was the emphasis that some of the characters placed on the fact that they were Sicilian. Right. And me being an ignorant white American, <laughs> that stuck out to me because I was like, but Sicilians are Italian. You know, and and in uh, and doing some reading about that online, um, Sicilians, while they do see themselves as you know being a part of Italy, they are still a very distinct culture within the country and nation of Italy. They still see themselves as being somewhat different because. I mean, the cultures themselves are, are markedly different. Like, the, the cuisines are different between Sicily and northern parts of Italy and the mainland. And the language, the linguistic dialect is different. And that was something that I found while reading as well, is that it's not just Italian that they're speaking in the Godfather movies. It's also distinctly Sicilian that they're also speaking, and they interchange back and forth. I was going to say there is a lot of Sicilian talk in the film. I've noticed that, you know, they'll want to speak that particular language, and then there's a little Italian, so it all depends on who the character is. Yeah, it's a, it's a way of sort of like separating the in-group and the out-group. I think the whole trilogy comes down to three different themes. And I've thought this before, and then it's just reiterated that watching it recently. Uh, the whole Godfather trilogy represents family, identity, and loyalty. 
So within the identity portion, I think, uh, as you mentioned, you know, being how they were very, very specific to identifying as Sicilians uh, as rather than Italians. I think we as humans get wrapped up in our identity. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times, I think that's a good thing, you know, um, just I see that on the same token as, um, you know, we're Americans in this country, but how many people get so wrapped up on, well, I'm a Southerner, Mm -hmm. you know, or I'm a Yankee or, you know, and that is a part of their identity as opposed to being American. Yeah, there's a great deal wrapped up in one's regional identity whenever it comes to things like the language and slang that you use with other people so you know who belongs and who doesn't or the different kinds of foods that you can only find in specific states or um, you see this a lot with sports teams I think too that you know the team that represents your state's college or your state in general there's a lot of sort of tribalism around that Yeah, I haven't really thought about that. And the um, the notion of the of the family as a theme extends even to like the general some of the slang terms, I guess, that you see used with the mafia, like the family, or that's that's a really key aspect of these films, the family that you know, you, you highlighted as to who is a part of the family and who isn't and what privileges that brings with it, mm-hmm. what protections that brings with it or what they don't. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's why in The Godfather 1, there's such a big emphasis on the scene where there's the baptism of Connie and Carlo's baby. Uh, I think that it was not just coincidental that the assassination of the heads of the five families takes place at the scene of the baptism. The baptism represents... Uh, so many things in the Christian faith, but also that is the community's commitment, the church's commitment, and the family's commitment to come and take this child under their wings and say that they're going to make sure that this child is raised properly and follows the, the right path. With that being said, I think that was the whole theme of family, and we're going to protect and do whatever it takes as a family to uphold not only this child, but one another. And you see the other five families in the mafia that were a threat to the Corleones get all taken out. And so, you know, I think that goes full circle back into we're going to protect our own. Yeah, it's it's like solidifying the role that the family plays in this child's life and the role that the child plays in the family while also being played against the inverse of dissolving these other families. Right. And then, you know, there's also that important theme that everyone takes on you know whenever you marry someone you don't just inherit that spouse you inherit their entire family mm-hmm. and all the stuff that comes along with exactly. it exactly so good and bad that's one thing that really the godfather trilogy drives home is that you know whenever you get into the family it's you know that last chance do you really want to do this and i think we can see that in everyday life yeah it's interesting to me noticing some of the contradictions and like what many of the characters proclaim as being a major part of their belief system and their identity versus the actions that they actually carry out in this profession of family first and family's the most important and I'm doing all of this for the family. But I think for several of the individuals in the family, 
what they're pursuing are their own personal self-interests. Well, uh, and talking about character development, whenever you see Al Pacino's character as Michael Corleone, the son of Don Vito, who then later becomes the godfather, who was the, the least likely one to do so. Uh, he was not going to be considered ever to be a part of the family business. Uh, and then much to everyone's surprise, he comes through once there is a threat to his father's life. And you see that uh, in The Godfather, both one, two, and three, you see him going down the path of a really uh, tumultuous style of greed in his own way, um, hunger for power, and hunger for dominance. And it almost seems like nothing's ever enough was the impression that I got. You know, it's just he wants more and more and more and has to consume more and more and more. And, you know, the family was fine in the beginning, but they have to, you know, as if the olive oil business isn't enough, then they've got to get into the casino business. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, from the casino business, then um, from there, you know, it doesn't end all the way to where they're actually you know, laundering money, you know, for the Vatican. So it's right. like, hey, come on now, how much, you know, how, how uh, when are you going to stop, you know? Yeah, for for all of his, for all of Michael Corleone's complaining of, they just keep pulling me back in. It's like you're not really resisting that exactly. much. Exactly. <laughs> How much of that, you know, is his own self-pride? You know, all of these awards and all of these recognitions and politicians in their pockets, as, every, as you hear referred to several times in the film, mm -hmm. you know, who wouldn't want all of those things? But then it's like once they're accomplished, then you want to get to what the next level is. Yeah, he talks a lot about, you know, becoming, what is it? Not exactly going straight, but like mainstream, Legit. legitimate. He wants to legitimize the businesses. Well, it's like as long as you're a part of organized crime, there's nothing that's going to be legitimate about your businesses. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, his own children couldn't even change him. So I no. think that was a big part of seeing that in The Godfather 2 and 3 mm -hmm. was that, you know, once his children started to get older and their lives started to get threatened and you start to see your actions take effect on their lives, mm -hmm. eventually you would want to take a step back. But, you know, he, uh, Michael Corleone, just really has uh, all of these impacts of his own personal gain that have such a hard hold on him. He really doesn't even let his family stop him at that point. And I think you start to see that with that development as you mentioned earlier i think whenever it gets to that point you kind of go against what your own personal belief system is mm -hmm. yeah for I, I don't i don't doubt that he loves his children and he loves his family but he cannot separate his own identity from the identity of those around him. So like his children are extensions of him. They're not their own people is the impression that I'm getting because he wants to control every aspect of their lives. Like you see that, you see that with his son, for instance, when his son is trying to say, I don't want to follow in your footsteps and be a lawyer and take over the family business. I want to be an artist. <laughs> I want to be a performer. And he he has a great deal of resistance to that. Like, he's completely laid out the plans that he wants his family members to have because that's what he wants. Right. And I see... I see him as viewing them as extensions of himself. And he really did that. That really started 
Yeah, once he became Godfather. Yeah. I saw that because he really tried to dominate uh, his younger brother, Fredo. Or I'm sorry, his older brother, Fredo. Yeah. Michael is the kid. I keep forgetting because, uh, once again, the least likely to become Godfather. But he kept trying to control his older brother. And then uh, he kept trying to control Connie, his sister. And then it even gets to the point towards the end of The Godfather 2, you start to see uh, whenever he doesn't get his way, he starts uh, pushing Tom Hagen, his other brother, who's uh, concierge, into a corner and starting to make him really feels though he's going to show that loyalty or there's not going to be anything at all. Yeah, whereas before with Tom, it's like, oh, you're our brother, you're a member of our family, uh, you know, there's no difference between you and us, and then, you know, all of a sudden, whenever he feels he needs to, he can try to um, exploit the fact that Tom's not blood-related, he's family-related, and he tries to kind of like, you know weigh that in his face or kind of put put the pressure on him in that way is like, well, you know, I could make things difficult for you. Right. And he um, exerts a lot of control over Kay as well, his wife. Yeah, yeah, he does. <laughs> Even after they're not married anymore. Mm-hmm. He still tries to tell her what to do. Yeah. And that was uh, one of the things that stood out to me in the movie, too, is like the the gender differences. So within the system and the hierarchy of the family and within the mafia and within the time period that it's set in, it's definitely heavily patriarchal. So like the, the men are in charge and that's just the way it is. And the, the women basically just serve two roles or two functions in this film series which is like their wives slash mothers or their mistresses there's really no in between and as soon as they stop serving one of those functions then they're not really useful anymore or they're a threat so like with I noticed this with Kay in particular it's like she's she's accepted she's pursued You know, Michael's just all about her until she shirks the role of being mother and getting the abortion and kind of exerting her own control over her own life. And at that point, she basically becomes dead to him. Yeah, that's a good point. Because also, you know, she was, I think she felt as though that she should have more of a voice Mm -hmm. in not so much in the family business, but just within their own household. Once she wasn't getting that, then that really made her take a step back. And I think as you have, identify, you know, exactly what are the role of women within this family. Yeah, it's like her presence to Michael is like she serves a purpose for him as his wife, as a supporter, and then also as a mother. And she's supposed to bear his children and then take care of them. And that's basically the extent of of her, of her purpose in life. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like with Connie... Uh, I feel <laughs> I feel so bad for her character as a whole because it's like she she doesn't have a role or a purpose in the family either except to get married off and have kids and that's basically all that she's supposed to do and then you know for all the the talk of you know protecting one's family when she is being very violently abused, nothing gets done about it because it's not convenient to do anything about it at the time. <laughs> and um, I, I just, I think that as far as the performances in the movies go too, the the actresses don't have that much to work with. Like, you know, their characters are not very 
dynamic or interesting or complex even. See, uh, that's where uh, I have an opinion because I yeah. think I think out of the whole trilogy, mm-hmm. I felt as though that the biggest character development that transpired through the film was Talia Shire's yeah. performance as Connie. I think, you know, she goes from being just a dependent uh, really, you know, young adult, but more or less she's still a child mm-hmm. in her personality in The Godfather 1. And then in the second Godfather, you see she's, you know, more of this woman of her own. She's independent. She's sensual. She's, you know, going to live her own life and do what she wants to do. She bucks the family system, you know, and so she's just on her own. And then in the third Godfather, she is completely the matriarchal portrait of the Corleone family. I really, really enjoyed her character in The Godfather 3 because the whole family element was what was most important to her. I saw it as she was going to relive, she was going to keep the legacy of the Corleone family alive. Those things that were important to her parents and that were important to generations before, she was going to make sure that that still happened. And then in the end, you see uh, the theme of family and loyalty come back because she's the one who actually stands up in the end and takes action against against uh, the individuals who are going to try to pursue the death of her brother. Stone Cold Assassin. Yeah, Yeah, so, you know, I think, to me, out of the whole trilogy, uh, Connie has the best character development. And I think that's good in your defense, because like you said, it was given to a woman. And and I I would agree with that sentiment, that she, she definitely has a really noticeable character development over the series of the other three films and then but like like taken individually it's like basically in the in the first movie or whatever she just is screaming and crying sure, the whole sure, time. Yeah. <laughs> which is a little like eh. but um yeah i will agree that and then like in the third movie too she kind of takes on this this role with michael where she's like a confidant, she kind of, she almost takes on more of a conciliary role than the conciliary does. Yeah, 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 she is the family. I think, you know, he's the business and she's the family. Mm -hmm. She keeps everything in line for, you know, what would Papa do? What would, you know, in that sense. Yeah, she's almost like Michael's conscience and in a sort of way, like in the, like, twisted, (laughs) you know, kind of way that, that these these films uh, with crime families. Yeah, and then it's it's interesting that, like, with Kay, she, she's, like, villainized by Michael, basically, in a way, and then is shunned because she tries to exert her own independence and identity as a human being as opposed to just, like, a pawn for him to do whatever with. Right. Well, and then... The third theme that we mentioned, loyalty, uh, it speaks in and of itself whenever you see that that's what ties everything together. I think the loyalty ties together the family and the identity. And then because because of that family and identity, there are certain expectations that must be met, which is through the loyalty aspect. And I think you see within this family, whenever greed does come up, then that's where the loyalty is severed. And then from there, there's consequences. Yeah, loyalty seems to supersede everything else. Family doesn't matter anymore. Identity doesn't matter anymore. It's like, we're, did you stick by my side? Did you do what I wanted you to do? Did you betray me or not? Right. And that, to me, was so important because uh, whether you're in the family blood-related or you're in the family mafia-related, once you have no loyalty left, you are dead to the Corleones. Quite literally. Yes. <laughs> literally and figuratively. I just, yeah, I think that forms a stronger 
backbone and sense of connection amongst the individual characters than any other aspect. And um, Fredo is just what pops into my mind more distinctly than anything else is just that he broke his brother's heart, so he didn't come back from that fishing trip. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, and then once again, it ties all three together. Uh, That's what I'm saying. The whole film, you see just this uh, Trinitarian uh, representation of family identity and loyalty so you know Fredo loses his loyalty well within that instance uh, the loyalty hurts the most because of his identity of being a family member Um, one of the most chilling quotes I think in the film is you know Whenever Michael speaks of Fredo after he knows that his brother betrayed him, you know, nothing happens to him while our mother's still living. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's always going to be this ghost that haunts you that, you know, once your mother dies, you know, you're next. Open season. Yeah. (laughs) And so, you know, that's powerful. Those are powerful words because you know that once uh, once Michael says those things, he means them. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting whenever you think about the way that Michael changes from the very beginning to how he ends up. And it's really quite tragic. And, you know, I was thinking about almost comparing it to a Shakespearean tragedy, but it's definitely got more of a, you know, Greek is probably the word that comes to mind, but very specifically Italian or Mediterranean, you know, kind of a tragedy where, you know, he was so optimistic, I guess, about his future at the beginning. And he had a very distinct idea of the way that he wanted his life to go. And then by virtue of wanting to protect his family, much like his father did before him, he gets wrapped up in all this crime business. And by the end of the trilogy, it's destroyed his whole family. Right. And I think that's, that's a representation, too, of modern crime, you know, and modern gangs. It's so easy to get sucked in. And then once you're in, to a certain extent, you're too it's too deep to ever get out so i think that really uh shows that there's a whole bigger picture to what's on the surface um you know so uh, good the godfather trilogy to me some of the greatest films ever made uh some people think that the films are overrated absolutely not in my opinion lots of references you know that carry on throughout american pop culture Um, you know lots of very very memorable scenes in the movie that stick with you forever uh you know for all the hype and all the greatness that the godfather number one was um it only won three oscars so uh, it was nominated for uh eight different academy awards but only won three and uh but it was three biggies so best picture best screenplay and best actor marlon brando who did not accept his award whenever he won that's right he had a he had another person accepted in his stead. Yes. yes. And uh, it was due to the uh, mistreatment of Native Americans. Mm-hmm. And Michael um, and Michael Corleone <laughs> uh, and Al Pacino did not attend the Academy Awards uh, that year, either in 1972, whenever The Godfather was nominated, because he was pissed off at the Academy because he received a nomination for Best Supporting Actor for his role of Michael Corleone. And he felt as though that he should have been nominated for Best Actor because he had more screen time than Marlon Brando. So, interesting chain of events there. Logically, that would make sense, yes. But, 
So um, then The Godfather 2 comes around in 1974, and it wins six Academy Awards and was nominated for 11. It gets all of the biggies. Well, I don't say all the biggies, but it gets um, the ones that matter. So it gets Best Picture. So that was the first yeah, and to my knowledge, only sequel that's ever won an Academy Award for Best Picture. Uh, Francis Ford Coppola won his first Oscar for Best Director for Godfather Part Two, And uh, as we mentioned earlier, Robert De Niro took on Best Supporting Actor, and then it got another screenplay. Um, so... Good Academy Award wins for Part 1 and Part 2. Part 3 was nominated for seven Academy Awards. Unfortunately, it didn't win any. It did get a nomination for Best Picture, though. You mean Sofia Coppola didn't get a nomination? She did not, sadly. (laughs) So... But, I mean, honestly, it surprises me that it got nominated for any Oscars. No, yeah. So, I mean, it was it was very well. It was very well received. So In doing the preparation for the episode, I know that there were a lot of mixed feelings about the third film. Sure. Well, you know, and the with the long time lapse, yeah. you know, I could see where, uh, and then also in the early 90s, you know, there was not really... Um, it seemed as though the mainstream film was going kind of a different direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so much time had lapsed from the first two films, which were only two years apart. Mm-hmm. The hype of that Godfather sense wasn't quite as there. But I was glad to see that it did get some nominations for some big awards. Yeah. And, you know, to talk about just the quality, I guess, of the filmmaking, I think is is worth noting like what you had brought up about the films some people think of them as being overhyped or what have you but i think that there is something about these movies that sets them apart from other mobster movies because i mean it's definitely its own set genre of mob-centered movies but it it has a much more cinematic quality to it where it seems more focused on the actual act of storytelling about this particular family over a period of time as opposed to just like flashy gunfights and sexy ladies and (laughs) money. I agree. Yeah, I do. I think that you take into consideration, you know, this is someone's life. These are lives that we're talking about. And it plays on to, yes, the big picture of the crime and all of the drama and the good and the bad. But then also it takes you back to these people have families, too. And there's things going on in the home outside of all of this rigmarole. Yeah, I think there's a reason why it's such like a a cultural and cinematic touchstone because of the way it tells its story. And, you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think, like, mobster movies became really popular in the 30s and 40s with, like, film noir. Mm -hmm. And I think that there was kind of, like, a lull in between that time period before The Godfather was made, where you really didn't see that many mob movies. It seems that way. Yeah. It does seem that way whenever you look at film at a historical sense. Well, uh, some of my favorite films of all time, so I was really glad that we got to do this and make an episode out of it. Yeah, and I think before I sat down and and watched these movies with you, um, especially the first time many years ago now, I kind of was not looking forward to watching them because, you know, it is just like, oh, I know what that's about, or, oh, they're so long. (laughs) But I, I think that they're... They're good quality movies to spend some time with, even even if just once, even if you are not that crazy about the mob genre. I think these are um, a set of films that are 
set apart from the rest of the genre. So undoubtedly, whenever giving our scores, uh, The Godfather 1, I give it 5 out of 5 stars. The Godfather 2, I give it 5 out of 5 stars. These are just not only just um, great stories, uh, great acting portrayals, but then also they're shot beautifully. The costumes are great. The yeah, sa- Even the sound, the sound mixing and that was ahead of its time, I thought, in those. And the best score that you'll ever hear in your entire life yeah. that sticks with you forever and ever. Uh, the Godfather Part 3, Coda, uh, I will give it four out of five stars. However, I do think that it was the better picture in 1990, even though it didn't win best picture like the first two. Mm-hmm. It lost to Dances with Wolves. And uh, to me, Godfather Part Three was a much better film than Dances with Wolves. I honestly don't know if I have seen Dances with Wolves. Or if I have, it was whenever I was a child, so I can't really... Can't really compare. Well, the Godfather <laughs> should have won in that sense. <laughs> and I, w- I would say that for the for parts one and two, I would certainly grant them both five out of five stars. I think that the that the the level of filmmaking here just, I mean, I don't see how you could give them anything lower. And then with part three, for me, it would be a three out of five. Three. Yeah. It's really, yeah, there <laughs> just for my own personal opinion, I felt that there mm, well, there were certain character developments and portrayals and stuff that I liked for for me, there were certain parts that just kind of felt like they dragged a little bit more mm. to me to me it's 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 the least good of the three well sure that was that's in everybody's opinion but three i think is just really being i think that's kind of being brutal (laughs) for me it was sort of yeah i could have done all right well what are we going to talk about next it's like it we've kind of had a little uh, string of luck here with uh, the last couple episodes where it's easy to kind of rely on a seasonal theme right uh, you know, with this one being kind of like it's a new year and these are, you know, new new ways that you can change yourself and how you can develop into somebody different. Maybe we could do something like with strong female characters or something. I didn't never guessed you'd come up with something like that. <laughs> so we shall see what our next theme will be. All right. Sounds good. So until next time, we will see you all later. All right. Good night. Good night. If you liked what you heard, then please rate, review, and subscribe. That kind of feedback really helps small podcasts like ours get noticed and heard by more people. If you're listening on Spotify, you can hit like and follow instead. If you want to send us a review by email or any other feedback, then feel free to email us at filmlymatters at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at FilmlyMatters and check out our website at FilmlyMatters.com where you can read more about us, listen to full episodes, and read our film critiques and reviews. Thank you!